So Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya So Suprabha Kijai Facebook working properly Kijai Um so this verse is Idangi Visham Bhagavani Vetaro Jato Jagatstana Niro Dasambhava Tadhi Sayam Veda Bhavam Statapite Pradesha Matram Bhavatak Pradarshitam. So um I'll read Prabhupada's purport to begin. The Supreme Lord personality of Godhead is himself this cosmos and still he is aloof from it. From him only has this cosmic manifestation emanated in him it rests and unto him it enters after annihilation. Your good self knows all about this. I have given only a synopsis. So to begin I want to look at a little Sanskrit word, which is very important here, and that is Eva. Uh, the reason I'm looking at the word Eva is because if you look, if you, if you have the Sanskrit here, it says, uh, th indeed, this universe is like the Lord. And Prabhupada says the Supreme Lord is himself this cosmos. W what this what it says literally is Idangi Visham, indeed this universe, Bhagavan Eva, is like Bhagavan. So let's look at the meanings for the word like. And this is not like, and this is like I like you. It's a different like. This is similar, like in the sense of similar. So like in the same manner, as if it were, in some measure, a little perhaps. So uh nearly almost so just so just exactly indeed so it can mean that uh that um in a sense the lord is the universe that's the way i think it it, it should be taken here according to the sanskrit dictionary that indeed this universe in a sense in a way is the lord and is not the lord as I've explained, itara means the opposite of whatever it follows. So, eva itara, ivetara means in a sense it is, and in a sense it's not. And as I mentioned uh, in the first, my first attempt to give this class, which didn't work because um, of technology, um, in chapter nine, the beginning of chapter nine of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna really goes into this point. The universe is the Lord, it's not the Lord. Krishna's present. He's not present and so on. So this universe indeed, in, in a sense, is the Lord. And in a sense, the Lord is not the universe. That's what it says. So, so why is it? So, I mean, why in a sense is God the universe? In a sense, he's not. Because Jato, it's from him, Jagatstana Niro Dasambhava that the universe literally says has its maintenance destruction and again creation so these are in are these are go in order but 
the normal list is the universe, or, or say Krishna creates, maintains, and destroys the universe. Why does it start here with maintenance? The word stana, which literally means like status, status quo, or maintenance, standing. So why begin with the maintenance of the world and then go maintenance, destruction, creation? Because that is our point of view. Right now, those of us who are alive in this universe, uh, that's what we're seeing right now. We are seeing a universe being maintained. I mean, when you got up this morning, if, if you got up before the sun rose, uh, then you saw the sunrise. And, 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 and so uh, everything's going on. The law of gravity still functions. You are still you. And so that's maintenance. Everything is pretty much the way you left it when you went to sleep last night. So that maintaining the universe, so right now we are all eyewitnesses to Krishna's maintenance of the world. We are not seeing right now the creation and we're not seeing the destruction of the universe. We are seeing the maintenance. So Narada Muni begins from where we are right now, the present, that the Lord maintains the world. That's where we are now. And he will destroy it and then he will create it again. So that's why the list, one reason why the list is given in that order. And because the world comes from Krishna and he maintains it and it comes back within him, therefore, in a sense, he's the universe. But in a sense, he's not the universe. He's different from it, but he's not. So this is really a verse which is rather explicitly teaching Beta Veda. If you want to know where is Beta Veda in the Bhagavatam, here's just one example of it, of Beta Veda in the Bhagavatam. Bhagavani Vetaro. The universe, in a way, is God, in a way, is not God, one and different. So then Narada says to Vyasa, Tadhi Swayam Veda. You personally know this, actually. Uh, he, indeed, indeed, you personally know this. So if he if he asked, knows it, why is Narda telling him something he already knows? Narda's sort of he's being very kind and polite, as I mentioned several times throughout this conversation between uh, Narda and Vyasa. Narda often, not always, but often uses the respectful form of the word "you" as "usted" in Spanish or "z" in German. Vu in uh, French and so on and so forth. So he's using the respectful. So it's an interesting guru-disciple relationship where there's mutual respect. So obviously Vyas already knows this, and obviously he kind of wasn't thinking about it when he did all these karmakanda literatures. So he kind of knows it and he kind of forgot it. That's the idea here. So um, Narada says to him, you're a great soul, which he said many times in this conversation. You know these things, but still, Tatapi, even so, uh, it has been shown to you, Pradarshitam. Darshana, you know, means like seeing. So, dar Darshitam means something is shown to you. You are made to see something, which is it's shown to you. So, even so, he said, just in summary, Pradesha Matram, just, uh, just, a little summary here has been shown to you, even though you already know these things. So it's very nice 
kind, polite conversation here. And of course, Vyasa really is a very exalted personality. So the next verse is, So, Narada says to Vyasa, you are a moga drik. Moga means futile, useless. Amoga means not in vain, not futile. So Krishna, so Vyasa is amoga drik. His vision is not in vain. His, his vision doesn't fail him. So um, he calls him moga drik, and then he tells him, understand, understand Avehi. Uh, how does Prabhupada translate this word of Vehi? Let's see, search out. Uh, Prabhupada translates this verse, your goodness has perfect vision. That's a moga trick. You yourself can know the, supreme, the super soul personality of Godhead because you are present as the plenary portion of the Lord. Although you are birthless, you have appeared on this earth for the well-being of all people. Please, therefore, describe the transcendental pastimes of the supreme personality of Godhead, Sri Krishna, more vividly. So, Twam, you Atmanatmana Mavehi. Now, the word Avehi, Ava, literally means down or downward or down into, uh, as an Avatara, the one who crosses down from the spiritual realm into this world. Avatara. Tara means crossing. So, Ehi means go or Ehi, go. So, literally, go down, go into it. It's a way in Sanskrit of saying, go deeply into it. There's really get, as we say sometimes in English, get to the bottom of it. Go deeply into it. Uh, don't stay on the surface. And that's because, in a sense, when uh, Vyas did all the Karmakanda stuff, it was a little bit on the surface of Vedic culture. Now, uh, what, what's translated, Prabhupada translates it, search out, um, and literally means in Sanskrit, like, go deep, go deep, understand it deeply. So, Twam, you, Avehi, understand, go deeply into uh, Atmanam, the self, by yourself, which, of course, is very much, uh, uh, reminds us of the Bhagavad Gita 6, 5, and 6, where Krishna says, only the self is a friend of the self, only the self can elevate the self, only the self degrades the self, and so on. So, Atman, Atmanam is something... Uh, you find in the Gita in many places, Atmana, by yourself, use your own resources, use your own, I mean, of course, we, we need a guru, we need Shastra. However, the reason we can take advantage of guru and Shastra is because we ourselves are eternal, glorious souls, part of Krishna. We've just kind of slipped on the uh, Maya's banana peel at the present time. But we have extraordinary powerful resources within ourselves because we're part of God. We're part of God. So you, you have a lot going for you. So Narada says to Vyasir um, Twam, you Atmana, by yourself, Atmanam, the self, Avehi, deeply understand, Amogadrik, you have unfailing vision. And, uh, and you yourself, or actually, I'm going to go technical. The word Atma, of course, can mean the regular self, soul like us, or the supreme soul. Prabhupada says, understand the super soul, which is implicit here. The literal grammar suggests that he's saying, understand yourself as a kala, an expansion of the supreme self. 
Because the second line is Parasya Pungsa of the Supreme Person, Paramatmana of the, as we say, super soul, of the Supreme Soul, Kalang, understand yourself to be a portion. And all of us are that in a sense. We are not empowered uh, avatars exactly like Vyasa. However, Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, I think it's 5 7, that Mamai Vangsa Jiva Loke, Jiva Bhuta Sanatana, which Whoops, that's, yeah, chapter 15, verse 7. Did I say 5? Chapter, I know, I know it's chapter 15. I was just testing you. Chapter uh, 15, verse 7, Krishna says that the jiva is eternally part of me. So kala also means a part of something, but in a special sense of an empowered part, shaktyavesha part. But we are also part of God. And so uh, we can understand God because we are part of God. And we are qualitatively one with God, even though quantitatively, of course, we're different. So he says, understand the self to be you, to be a, a part of that supreme soul, supreme person. And therefore, you as an eternal soul, know yourself to be ajam, prajatam, unborn, the unborn who has taken birth unborn, who nevertheless has taken birth, Jagatak Shivaya, for the good of the universe, for the good of the world, the unborn has taken birth. Understand that. And tan, therefore, Mahanu Bhava Vyudhiyodhi Ganyatam. It's a very beautiful Sanskrit composition. These verses, they're longer than regular slokas, and they're very beautifully, elegantly composed. So Mahanu Bhava, uh, anubhava means influence, or it can mean in sense of someone that causes others to understand. And maha, a great, one who has great power, great influence, great power to help others to experience reality. So mahanubhava, that's Krishna. Abhyudaya, udaya means uh, rising, going up, literally going up. And udaya, of course, related to the Bengali word Udila, which is Bengali for Udaya or Udita. And um, it's in that song, Udila Aruna, Purava Bhage, the orange red sun. The sun. Aruna is actually a color, sort of that orange, red, reddish orange color. And that's the color the sun is when it first comes above the horizon. And so it's called Aruna, so Udila Aruna. So the, that, that new sun has risen and abhiyudaya means literally that which springs up, that which, therefore, that which is prominent, that which is uh, important, and that which is interesting. And so, uh, so the these like interesting glories and activities, and like the latest news of the great, the greatly powerful Lord Adiganyatam. Those glories should be literally recounted in the sense of described, explained. Because gana in Sanskrit means count, and ganyata would mean the imperative passive, let it be counted, or as we say in English, so we have the same word count, but recount, to recount it, I mean a recount can mean to count again, of course. But also in English, uh, to recount can mean, in the dictionary, to tell someone about something, give an account, of an event or experience. 
So to recount means to, you know, and, that, and that's what adiganyatam, let it be recounted, let it be told, let it be explained, these glorious activities and uh, of the greatly influential, greatly powerful Lord Krishna. So that's at verse. Um, I've gone over the words a bit because they are sort of very complex, interesting Sanskrit words. And then I'll uh, maybe just end with this next verse, which is very important. Idangi pungsas tapasakshu tasya va suish tasya sup tasya chabudhi dattyo avichutarta avichutarta kavibhirni rupito jaruttama sloka gunanu varnanam. Uh, this is an important verse, and the purport is important. And in fact, when I was uh, working very hard back in the early 90s to legitimize higher education in English, because in, in ISKCON, because that was uh, 1991, 92, 93, 94, 95, because at that time, <laughs> higher education going to college was pretty, very much illegitimate in ISKCON. You know, it's like going to a slaughterhouse. Why would you go to a slaughterhouse? Anyway, Prabhupada ordered me to go back to college. I was urging on devotees the necessity to have educated devotees who could attract intelligent people to this movement. So Prabhupada wrote to me his first letter to me, I want you to get a good education so you can explain our movement to other educated people. So when I was having to fight against this wide perception that this was Maya, and I was deviating. I, you know, spent half my life being accused of deviating and being in Maya when, in fact, I think I was just trying to uh, promote something important, necessary in ISKCON. So, um, and of course, now it's considered to be. I mean, everyone knows. Yeah, you can go to college. I mean, it's hard to believe now. But when I went back to college, I had to fight for years to convince the leaders of ISKCON that it was not Maya to go to college. Anyway, Hare Krishna. So here's Prabhupada's translation. Learned circles have positively concluded that the infallible purpose of the advancement of knowledge, namely austerity, study of the Vedas, sacrifice, chanting of hymns, and charity culminate in the transcendental description of the Lord who's defined in choice poetry. I'm going to explain that, what the verse literally says, but Prabhupada says here, this is what I used to quote all the time in my struggle to legitimize higher education. Human intellect is developed for advancement of learning in art, science, philosophy, physics, chemistry, psychology, economics, politics, etc. And that's, of course, a very big etc., by culture of such knowledge, the human society can attain perfection of life. This is Prabhupada speaking. It's not me, you know, my latest crazy idea. This is Prabhupada saying, by culture of such knowledge, human society can attain perfection of life. This perfection of life culminates in the realization of the supreme being Vishnu. In other words, learning with an open heart, an open mind, learning history and philosophy and science, if you are sincere, will lead you to God because he's the highest knowledge. 
So if you're trying to learn more and more, understand more and more, not merely memorizing more and more details, but actually you know, coming to greater and greater conclusions, then that will lead you to God if you are intellectually honest. So Prabhupada says, this perfection of life culminates in the realization of the Supreme Being, Vishnu. The Shruti therefore directs that those who are actually advanced in learning should aspire for Lord Vishnu's service. And then of course Prabhupada says, unfortunately persons enamored by the external beauty of Vishnu Maya do not understand this. And they go for sense gratification. But Prabhupada says, when advancement of knowledge, he's talking about like the stuff you learn in school. When advancement of knowledge is applied, yukta, actually his word, yukta vairagya, when it is applied in the Lord's service, the whole process becomes absolute. That's what Prabhupada wrote to me. He said, stay in college. Prabhupada wrote that to me, stay in college, get a good education, that way you can preach to other educated people. He did not tell me to only read his books, although of course that's also very important. So, the Prabhupada says the whole process, when it is applied, yukta means also here also applied, the whole process becomes absolute. Uh, therefore, all the sages and devotees of the Lord have recommended that subject matters of art, science, philosophy, physics, chemistry, psychology, and all other branches of knowledge should be wholly and solely applied in the Lord's service, art, literature, poetry, pain, etc., and be used in glorifying the Lord. So um, going back to the Sanskrit, uh, and I'll try to show how these words, such as austerity, study of the Vedas, sacrifice, which sounds like Vedic culture, but I want to show that these things are going on everywhere anyway. So idanghi pungsas, this indeed, idanghi, this indeed, pungsas, for of a person, uh, tapasak, uh, of, in terms of austerity, shutasyava, education, suistasya, uh, sacrifice, suktasya, a spiritual education, buddhidatiyo, cultivation of higher intelligence and charity. So out in the world, let's say among the non-devotees, you know, people do austerities. The only people who don't do austerities are people that are really lazy and uh, have pretty much useless lives. But if you want to succeed, let's say you want to go to college, that's austerity. If you want to go to a good college, it's more austerity. You have to work harder. And then you've, you've got to study and you, you, know, you can't just fool around. If you want to develop a strong career, if you want success in whatever your career is, you have to work hard. There's a lot of austerity involved. If you want to be a doctor, my God, there's austerity. Or any of these things, any of these professions. So any successful person who's not a bum, any successful person performs austerity and shutasya and needs education. So we can take these words in a general sense, austerity, education, suistasya, sacrifice, People who make sacrifices, they make sacrifices for their family, for their country, for their community, for their political or social cause. You know, people make all kinds of sacrifices in this world. Suktasya, and uh, then there is spiritual education, religious education. Bodhi, you know, developing your higher intelligence, dattiyo, giving charity. So these are universal activities. These are not just, 
very highly specialized thing to go on in India. These are universal human activities, and the Bhagavatam says, avichuta arta, the infallible, unfailing purpose of all of these, because all the activities I just read are actually in Sanskrit in the genitive, which means of, of each one. In other words, the unfailing purpose of austerity, of education, of sacrifice, and so on. So grammatically, it means the purpose of these things we just went over. The unfailing purpose which Nirupita has been pointed out, uh, Prabhupada translates as concluded, Kavi B by the learned. Learned people, intelligent, scholarly people who are intellectually prepared, they have pointed out that the infallible purpose of all these activities is Dirutama Sloka Gunanu Varnanam. It is to describe continually the qualities of Lord Krishna called her Uttama Sloka. Um, Varnam also means color. Then, of course, it means Varna, as in the four Varnas, but also means color. Like, for example, Krishna Varnam, Tusha Krishnam, that famous verse, you know, with the color of Krishna. So, and so Anu Varnanam means to narrate, to describe. You can, and as we say, it's kind of like coloring it in. Let me color this in for you, or let me, it's like bringing a topic to life is Anu Varnanam. So, describe in a, in, a, in a vivid way, you could say, because uh, the word vivid means bringing something to life, actually. Uh, like, like, like vida, vida, you know, means life in Spanish, or like, you know, they say viva, viva, long live. So uh, to, to bring something to life is to, is to make it vivid. And so, uh, sort of describe in an interest, you know, describe, color in, I see, the, these, uh, the qualities of Uttama Sloka of Krishna, who is described by the greatest verses. So, uh, another Bhagavatam verse saying just sort of do what it takes to spread the Hare Krishna movement within reasonable boundaries, of course. So uh, I think I'll stop here. Let's see if there are questions. Uh, I mean, I always discover the questions right after I hang up on everybody, unfortunately. So let's see, this time I'll try to find the questions before I end the class. Uh, so far I'm seeing questions. Like I say, I always discover them afterwards. Um, let's see, I'm trying to get the previous questions, and usually it, it says here on Facebook, like, get more questions, but somehow it's not giving me that option right now. So unfortunately, I, ha I mean, or fortunately, or just factually, I haven't seen any questions, so if you did ask a question, didn't see it, sorry about that. But uh, I guess that's what it is. So thank you very much. Sorry for the technical problems we had earlier. I think I'm back on Facebook. The reason we had problems in the past is because normally I do these things directly on Facebook, but for some reason my Facebook wasn't working. Uh, and now it's working again. So we should not have problems. Question did just come in. 
Where does it say Vidya and Avidya are both important? I'm, I'm not sure what that means. I mean, Avidya. Well, Gisa Upanishad, there's a famous verse, Vidya, Avidya, Mrityum Tirtva, Vidya, Mrityamashnute. Uh, so where does it say that? I guess in the Yisra Upanishad. And that's... Uh, in the... Uh, let's see. I think it's Upanishads. Yeah. It's verse 11 of the Yisra Upanishads. Okay, we have another question. Oh, this... Uh, do you think we need more MBAs in the leader positions in ISKCON? I, I mean, I just think we need more people that know how to do business. We need lots of money. I mean, I don't personally need money, thank God, but we want to really spread this movement. We want to build the world's best educational system. The world's best... Imagine what that would do. You know, starting in kindergarten, K through PhD. Imagine if we had the best schools on earth imagine all the thousands if not millions of people that would want to send their children devotees or not to our schools so building i mean that's my personal opinion iskon seems to have this a uh, wonderful inspiration to build more and more and more temples as if you know people in the west are going to be attracted to indian style temples we know where that goes so um here's a suggestion what if we had the best schools in the world, not only would we turn out highly educated devotees, but we would attract millions of non-devotees to come to our schools. Even some devotees send their kids to Catholic schools or, or other schools because it's just the best school in their neighborhood. What if we had seminaries like, you know, the more developed religions do? What if it was, what if in order to be a leader in ISKCON, you know, GBC, temple president, it's, you know, we, we, it, ISKCON is what it is today, but what if in the future, to be a leader in ISKCON, you actually had to be educated, not necessarily a big scholar, but you needed a minimum education. What if temple presidents needed a minimum education so that as leaders, we don't embarrass ourselves by saying things which just are not logical or ignore a lot of objective information that we're not aware of? So just education is an incredibly important, extremely important thing we could do, but that takes a lot of money. What if we could build huge, like Prabhupada said, build um, big, beautiful rural communities with first world facilities? I mean, some, you know, we have a little bit of that in this gun, but what if we had the best, like they have an eco village, I think in, uh, of course, in Maharashtra, Narana Swami, a very beautiful project. What if we had just very beautiful communities all over to attract people? So we definitely can spend money. I mean, we could definitely spend money. So uh, as far as an MBA, if an MBA is going to help you to be successful, so you can really give something very helpful to this movement, then get your MBA. So from Alexa, let's see. Qual City, I'll read it in Spanish and English. ¿Cuál sería el principal ingrediente que usted considera se necesita para lograr vivir una vida en balance entre el éxito material y espiritual? So, what uh, would be the principal ingredient, that, what would you consider to be the principal ingredient needed to achieve 
a life, uh, in order to be able to live a life in balance between material and spiritual success. Well, the first thing we need, the first ingredient is Krishna consciousness because material success can be seductive. If someone is a spiritual neophyte, they may not survive their own success. And so clearly to have those two things, material and spiritual success, we need a certain level of material advancement and spiritual advancement. If we're really good spiritually, but not good materially, uh, that's great, that's wonderful, but we may not be able to do a lot necessarily if, uh, or as much as we could. And if we have material success and not spiritually successful, we may not survive our own success. So it's that combination. Or if someone has material success, here's another way to do this. If someone has material success, but maybe they're not spiritually advanced, take shelter of someone who is spiritually advanced and who's not a, and well, how can I say this nicely? Someone who is spiritually advanced and has enough common sense not to think that because I'm a guru or a spiritual leader, I know things I don't know and therefore tries to tell you all about your material business without really knowing what he or she is talking about. So I would include here as a qualification of spiritual success uh, that someone has some common sense and uh, doesn't think I know everything because I'm a leader in ISKCON. I mean, know what you know and know what you don't know. At the same time, we see people who, because devotees, who because they have material success, think they're great devotees or advanced devotees because, you know, that's the Protestant ethic that God chose his, his preference for certain souls by giving them a lot of money. <laughs> and so, of course, sometimes Krishna gives us enough rope to hang ourselves but it depends. So simply some devotees, we see some devotees in ISKCON, if I can be honest here, because they have some material success, think they are important devotees. And we see some devotees because they're strict spiritually, think they know everything about the world out there. So what we really need is that people who are spiritually advanced to inspire people who are materially advanced devotees or for one person to do both. Not easy, but but in any case, we need to bring together whatever that looks like, whether it's a group or whether it's one-on-one -on -one or the same person, we need to bring together spiritual and material expertise. Uh, and when we bring those two together, we'll have a successful Hare Krishna movement outside of India and in the Western world. I say that because the movement already is in many ways very successful in India. So uh, let's see if there are any other questions. Oh, here's one. Oh, that's the one I already answered. Oh yeah, it's, uh, okay, here's another one. Another, let's see, of course, you know you're listening, this is gonna cost you extra for all these questions. So when you were presenting the topic on theodicy, that means is there justice in God's creation? You gave us the next example in the same way that a loving father takes his son to the dentist to avoid uh, the son suffering a much bigger pain. Similarly, God has given us the best process to avoid a bigger pain. Such process includes, of course, a lot of suffering. Well, it depends on the person. Uh, 
My question is, isn't that to limit, in some extent, the power of the omnipotent God in the sense of limiting God's capacity of creating a process of purification in which the suffering is not a part of it? Positive reinforcement. <laughs> anyway, I won't comment on some certain modern, uh, certain types of modern hippie psychology. I mean, I believe in positive reinforcement in some cases. In some cases, it results in your kid shooting you one day in the back. So, um, Okay, first of all, uh, there's one logical problem. You could say, I mean, I mean, this is the basic argument that's given by atheists, uh, and that is um, that if God knows everything, he knows that there's a lot of injustice and suffering in this world. I mean, you could say, for example, that if a baby is born in pain or with some, ter some terrible condition, uh, that is a type of injustice because the baby's innocent. I mean, one could say that. So there's a lot of suffering in this world, a lot of injustice, unfairness, and God knows about it because he knows everything. God is, he's all-knowing and he's all good. So therefore, a good person seeing injustice wants to stop the injustice. That's what good people, that's, those are the feelings of good people. If you see injustice and you don't want to stop it, then, well, you may not be a good person. Or if you see someone suffering and that doesn't bother you, uh, you know, there are sort of clinical words for that. But if someone is a good person and sort of emotionally healthy, then it bothers them to see suffering. It bothers them to see injustice. They want to stop it. God, it's certainly... God should not be happy seeing all this. And if God is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's all-good, and because he's all-powerful, uh, he can stop it. He has the power to stop it. And therefore, because the suffering continues, the suffering doesn't stop, therefore there is no God who has these three qualities, all-knowing, all-good, all-powerful. This, of course, is not a valid argument because the argument is... Uh, ignores certain relevant factors and is based on false assumptions. So I'll go into that very briefly uh, at no extra cost to you, actually. Um, first of all, God may allow the example of the dentist. Let's say a, a loving mother or father takes their kid to the dentist because it that pain, which you could say is an evil, to intentionally bring your child to a place where the child will suffer, you could say is an evil, but it's preventing a much greater evil, namely the kid losing all his teeth and having his mouth all in, his or her mouth infected and just having a really horrible life. And so, and so therefore, uh, you could say, well, why don't the parents provide the child dental care with absolutely no discomfort? Well, because there is no such thing at least not among human beings. You say, well, God could create it. True, but here's the point. Uh, there's a there are certain things that you could say, well, could God do this? It's, it, there, it's, not a, it's not a coherent question. It's a question that ultimately is meaningless. For example, if you say, can God create a square circle? Uh, there's no such thing as a square circle. Uh, the word square and the word circle cancel each other out they don't there is no such thing it's logically impossible 
And so to be omnipotent doesn't mean to make square circles because there's no such thing as that. The words square circle have no meaning. They don't mean anything. So can God create something that is meaningless? I mean, what does the question even mean? And so in the same way, we have free will. Without free will, we would not be people. We would be dead machines. Imagine just being this thing that experiences, I mean, my God, that's like my worst nightmare. Imagine if you were conscious, but you had no will. You couldn't will anything. No desire, no will. No matter what happens, someone, you know, some, you know, let's say you're just sitting there in your chair and a bunch of crazy ants come and start eating you alive, and there's millions of them, you would not want to brush the ants off because you have no will. I mean, it's, you wouldn't be a person. You would be, it would be horrible. So to take away our free will so that we have no power to do anything intentionally is to take away your power to do good. You cannot do good unless you do it intentionally. I, I used to give this example when I was younger, even younger than now. Let's say you're walking down the street and some money falls out of your pocket. You don't know it fell out, and if you did know, you would have picked it up, but you don't know. So you keep walking, and maybe some poor person who really needs money finds the money and takes it and buys, goes to the, you know, the nearest Hare Krishna restaurant or something and gets some food. Now, you do not deserve credit for being charitable. You, did, you were not kind, you were not charitable, you are not merciful. Your money just fell out of your pocket. That's all that happened. And so therefore, you get no credit. You did not do a good deed because your money fell out of your pocket and you didn't know it. You only get credit for a good deed. You only act virtuously when you do it on purpose, when you do it intentionally. So if God makes the world in such a way that you cannot choose evil, then you cannot choose good. You're not, you are not choosing good if there's absolutely nothing else you could have chosen. You're not choosing good. You had no other choice. And so therefore, God creates a world in which you can choose good or evil. Now, in fact, that argument was given by a famous Christian philosopher, Plantago. However, someone could say, well, isn't that kind of ridiculous that just to protect someone's free will, an innocent person has to suffer just so that some fool can exercise their free will. That's not what happens because Krishna is so clever. He's actually very intelligent. So what Krishna does is, here's a person that wants to do something wrong, wants to do something bad. And here's another person who has some bad karma. Krishna brings them together. And the person that wants to do bad, something bad, does it to someone who deserves to get that reaction because of what they did. But then you could say, well, why couldn't Krishna teach us the same lesson by what's that positive reinforcement? 
uh, because it doesn't work. In some cases it works, and in some cases it produces little monsters. In fact, it produces many monsters. Nowadays, uh, psychologists and, and, and sociologists and people who are doctors of education are really uh, worried. I, I avoided the colloquial expression, freaked out. They are really worried. They're very concerned and, and, and disturbed because there has been a significant drop, a real drop in the mental health of college students. It used to be, an all, and, and they are attributing this to positive reinforcement. I'll explain this, how this uh, theory of positive reinforcement has actually caused a serious mental health crisis among college students. It used to be in the old good old days when I was younger, when I was younger, you would go to college precisely to get into discussions, even arguments, to test your own ideas and to test the ideas of other people, debate. That used to be the excitement of going to college. You could be a free thinker. You could, you know, get in there and do it. And, um, and actually, it makes you strong. You know, that's what makes you strong. You test your ideas. Like, we believe things. And then you go to college, you meet, because... Let's say in high school, like when I went to high school, practically everyone I knew, my friends, all came from the same neighborhood. You know, that's what high schools are. They're neighborhood schools. And so practically all my friends, they were, of course, different. They all had their own psychology. But in terms of our basic worldview, assumptions, you know, we were all from the same place. And then when you go to college, you meet people from different places have different ideas, people from just completely different backgrounds, body types and everything. And, 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 you, and you get into it and that makes you intellectually strong. It makes you intelligent. Nowadays, you have this new generation of college students who feel that they are being threatened if anyone disagrees with them. They become so mentally weak that if a speaker, let's say, if, if they are, especially the left wing, you know, people who are leftists, um, if a speaker comes on campus who's going to present conservative views, and let's say it's not a crazy conservative, and there are crazy conservatives, there's actually too many of them, but let's say it's one of the educated, intelligent conservatives, a scholar, someone who is actually being very logical, but just is presenting things that way. The students, even by that, the student, the, the, the leftist students don't run there to engage in healthy debate. They need a safe space. Not all of them, many of them. They need a safe space. They need to be protected. It is a medical threat to them. It is a medical threat to them. It is threatening their mental and perhaps physical health because someone disagrees with them. And so this whole thing about, you see, like, like trying to stop conservative speakers from coming to, to universities or speaking there and wanting safe spaces, trigger warnings. If you're going to say anything I disagree with, the teacher should tell me first so I can sort of emotionally prepare myself or, or, or run out of the classroom uh, 
because someone, the teacher may say something that I don't agree with. And that may actually be a, a, an emotional medical threat to me. So, so many educators are now thinking, where did this come from? How are people so crazy like this? These, how can these students be so weak? And the answer they're coming up with, you know, learn the most prominent psychologists and, and, and scholars of education is that it comes from a change in parenting strategies, the way parents teach their children. That when I was growing up, if you did something wrong, you know, my parents told me and they told me very clearly that what it was wrong and there was no doubt about it and there were consequences. Nowadays, uh, in some houses, not everywhere, you have positive reinforcement. Oh, Johnny, uh, you just punched your little sister. Now, I know you probably had some reason to do that. And I, I you know, I, I want to validate the fact that, you know, you're not a bad person, but maybe you could consider not punching your little sister. So, you know, all this positive reinforcement, like athletic competitions where everyone wins, which means no one wins and actually everyone's miserable. So this whole thing where the, the greatest threat to human life is that someone could diminish your self-esteem. Anyway, I mean, this is a whole other topic, but so go back to Krishna. So this idea, just positive reinforcement, no. Sometimes there's also the expression, no pain, no gain. Is the amount of suffering that Krishna gives us fair? Is it fair and necessary? In other words, could we have learned the lesson less painfully? Uh, the answer is no. And so if you think, yeah, but I'm suffering so much, well, think how much suffering you cause. Think how deep our illusion is. That's what we, that is our philosophy, that Krishna does not make you suffer more then you need to suffer in order to ultimately have real happiness and stop and to stop being a complete uh, nuisance to the universe. So, uh, so yeah, we uh, we are not suffering more than we need to suffer. We we need, we not only deserve it. You could say, well, you deserve it, but Krishna should be merciful, and even though you deserve it, if He can teach you the lesson. In, in a better way, even if you do, because there's not only just justice, there's also mercy. There has to be justice and mercy. And the answer is Krishna already does it. So we may think that certain punishments are just horrible. No one could deserve that, but guess what? They probably deserve more. And their illusion is so deep rooted. Their propensity to do evil is so deep that it was just necessary and uh, to preserve that person's free will, they had to be shown what they were actually doing. Anyway, so that's the answer to that question. It's a little long, uh, but um, there's another question, I believe. Boy, there are questions now. Um, is the universal basic income compatible with the principles of Bhakti Yoga? Yes. Universal basic income means everybody gets, you know, at least the minimum. I would say yes, if it's not given to lazy people who are just exploiting other people. Universal uh, basic income should be for people who have very good reason why they need it. 
there's a very good re and a good reason is not because I'm lazy or because I like to exploit other people. That's not a good reason. So if you don't get good karma for doing something good by accident, do we get bad karma for doing something bad by accident? That's a good question. We hear offenses are dangerous, even if unintentional, or what if you kill someone by accident? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Um, we, I would say we are not, we don't get bad karma for accidents if the accident was not caused by negligence. Let's say, for example, I'm driving my car and uh, at the same time, and I know, you know, I've heard many times that if you text and drive, you're not going to drive well. You're, you know, you're much more likely to have an accident if you text and talk on the phone, if you text and just talk to the person next to you. In other words, if you're driving and don't pay attention just to your driving, it's much more likely of an accident. Now, let's say I'm driving and I am texting. Actually, I don't. Let's say I'm driving and I'm texting or, or, or talking to someone and I have an accident and kill someone. It was an accident. I had no desire or intention to kill that person. I feel terrible that I killed the person. However, I was criminally negligent and in fact, if it comes to court and it's shown that I was not paying attention to the driving, even in terms of material law, I'm responsible. I am guilty of, uh, I forget if there's a term for it, not negligent homicide, but, but you know, it's when you kill somebody because of your own unjustified negligence or not paying attention. So that would, uh, if it's an accident in which a normal person a normal person taking normal precaution would have had that accident. In other words, the accident was not caused by negligence, then I think that that's different. So how free is our will actually? In Udava Gita to said a sober person, even when harassed by other living beings should understand that his aggressors are acting helplessly under the control of providence. How do we understand that? Uh, we, we have free will in proportion to our goodness. Because if you take the mode of goodness or spiritual goodness, which is simply goodness in, with Krishna, then you're clear headed. You don't have strong passions and addictions. You just, you have the luxury of thinking clearly and then coming to an intelligent conclusion and doing the right thing. That is the luxury, that is the blessing of being in the mode of goodness. Now in the mode of passion, I have attachments. So even though my intelligence may tell me, don't do that, but I'm attached and therefore I do it. Like someone stays too long with the wrong person. Or, I mean, you know, there, there's innumerable examples of doing the wrong thing because of attachment. So if I'm attached to things, I start to lose my power to act on the basis of clear intelligence. And therefore you could say my free will is diminishing because the more I'm attached, the less I can do what I really know is best. And then if you get to the mode of ignorance, free will becomes very shrunken. It's very small because in the mode of ignorance, uh, you know, people are really gone. 
So, yes, we do have free will to the extent that we are in a purified state. And to the extent that we are contaminated, to that extent, we don't. For example, if someone is, a, is an addict, a drug addict, how much free will do they have? So free will uh, increases as goodness increases, and the opposite also. Uh, so someone thanked me. You're welcome. Thank you. With the, with the excessive negative media going around in relation to the coronavirus, what should or, would Shudra Prabhupada prefer for us to take the flu shots, even though the ingredients to the vaccine may be filled with animal products? Whoa. Uh, I don't know. Excessive negative media, that, you know, depends, I guess, on your point of view. It's just like, for example, I mean, sometimes because certain things are dangerous, there's what's called an abundance of caution. So maybe it's excessive. I mean, obviously the media, they're just, you know, anyway, can't say too little about the media. So um, as far as taking flu shots, that, that's a private, an individual decision. If to save your life, if you, if you reasonably feel that your life is somehow in danger and therefore you have to take a certain flu shot. First, I would find out if there are non-animal based flu shots, but uh, to save one's life, uh, to take a certain medicine, I think probably would approve that. In the conditioned state, we come under the modes of material nature. How is the distinction made between our own free will and being pushed by the mood? I explained that. It depends on the same question, really, how much you are in the mode of goodness and how much you are not. So, uh, no more questions. I think I'll stop here. <laughs> so, th uh, thank you all very much. I appreciate your watching. And uh, hopefully now Facebook, uh, oh, here's one thing. Oh, well, that was Krishna Priya. Um, I, uh, yeah, I answered that, so I ho hope you're satisfied. Here's one that just has question marks, but no questions, so I don't know the answer to that one. So thank you all very much, and hopefully we will not have any more technical problems, and, and uh, we'll meet again next week. Hare Krishna.